Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our next class of Essential Truths of the Christian Faith. Uh, as I think everyone knows by this point, we are working through Dr. R.C. Sproul's book, which covers those core foundational truths of our faith as believers. And I know there's been a rotation of uh, men leading the class, Pastor Brent, Pastor Greg, and others. Um, as I did for my prior session, um, I'm going to be leaning on PowerPoint once again just because it helps keep me organized and on point, but uh, by no means let that derail you from jumping in with questions, comments, discussion points. Uh, without any further ado, though, let's go ahead and get a summary of where we are going. going to be dealing with four chapters and four topics today. The virgin birth, Jesus Christ as the only begotten, the baptism of Christ, and the glory of Christ. I think it's rather fitting, considering the season that we are approaching, that we are uh, going to begin with examining the truth of the virgin birth of our Savior. And yes, I do realize that it is still before Thanksgiving, and so for many of you, it triggers you deeply uh, to be talking about Christmas already. Uh, so my sympathy for the, uh, the reckless revelers uh, putting you under such uh, distress. Um, but this is the order of the chapters. This is what we have for today. Let's go ahead and consider uh, this truth of the birth, virgin birth of Christ. I, perhaps I'm just speaking for myself, but I think that uh, with this truth, as with many truths in the faith, they can become so entrenched and ingrained in our minds that they become a little commonplace. Uh, it sort of rolls uh, off our tongue. It sits there in our mind without much forethought or consideration which is unfortunate. So as we consider the topic today, I hope that we really will ponder uh, this miraculous and mystifying reality of Christ's virgin birth. Now, although omitting the detail that it will be a virgin birth, the promise of a human Messiah actually goes well back in Scripture. Uh, all the way to the beginning, in fact, uh, with Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where after the fall, God speaking to Satan says, I will put enmity uh, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, notice that God did not say between you and Adam or between your seed and his seed. He specifically references Eve and her seed. And I think that this is an important distinction that we'll see here in a bit under the doctrine of original sin. Uh, now I'm speculating here, but I suspect that as Adam and Eve received this promise, they immediately started looking for this promised crusher of the serpent. Each grandson, uh, each son and grandson, I'm sure, they perhaps wondered, is this the one? Uh, that had to only add to the devastation when their firstborn uh, proved to be a murderer, Cain murdering Abel. And of course, what they saw with all of their descendants was sin, uh, as we see with all of our descendants, and every descendant except one uh, since the fall in the garden. In Job, one of the oldest books in the Bible, uh, 15 uh, verse 14, one of Job's friends says this, What are mortals that they could be pure? or those born of woman, that they could be righteous. Actually, all mythology is a search for the Messiah. If you take Greek mythology, the, right. um, it is the, the Zeus is a serpent, the feeder of a serpent. The heroes defeat serpents. So that all mythology can be tied into just looking for 
burden looking for a Messiah. Mm. I agree. It's ingrained within us to look for that. Yeah. I agree. Um, in Job here, though, you see some hopelessness. Uh, as you consider those who are the mortals born of woman, this despair of how can they be pure? How can they be righteous? Now, Job's friends were off in a lot of their application uh, as they talked with Job about his suffering. But if you read what they say about God and about man, it really does reveal some, some deep truths that are borne out by numerous other passages of Scripture. Um, we know that there is none righteous, no, not one, as the psalmist says, that we have all turned aside and gone after our own way, as we read in Isaiah 53. But glory, hallelujah, Galatians 4, 4 through 5, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as son. The promise was ultimately, we know, fulfilled in the virgin birth of our Savior. So let's consider uh, Gabriel's words to Mary, words that we'll continue to be reacquainted with as we approach the nativity season. From Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 35, we read, Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, Mary's smart. She knows how babies are made. Not like whipping up a cake in the kitchen. It's not a solo effort. You need the male the female, to have a baby. Even with today's scientific advances, uh, with in vitro fertilization, you still have human sperm, human egg, human baby. But look how Gabriel responds. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Dr. Sproul notes that the language of the Spirit's coming upon Mary and overshadowing her echoes the descriptive account that we read in Genesis of the Holy Spirit's work in the original creation of the world. Uh, we read about how the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. So there's still marvel and mystery with this conception, uh, but the words of Gabriel really could not be plainer. The source of Mary's pregnancy is divine. She's not getting married to Joseph early. Her child, the Holy One, will be called the Son of God. Now, this is where critics and skeptics, scribes and Pharisees and the like would jump in and say, well, of course, that's what Mary said. Uh, she was in an embarrassing position. Uh, the penalty for fornication and adultery being what it is, is it any surprise that she came up with some alternative explanation? You have to ask yourself, who really is going to buy that kind of explanation, especially her betrothed, who also is a smart guy and knows how babies are made, well, he's told the same thing. 
we see in Matthew 1, 20-23, but as Joseph considered these things, that is the fact that she was with child, and Matthew actually gives a narrative intro to this uh, account where he says, before they came together, Mary was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Exactly what we saw in Luke. Joseph, though, doesn't know that, and he's considering these things when, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I love that passage in Matthew. It's a twofer. You get both the New Testament uh, declaration of the virgin birth, but also the Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah of that virgin birth. Now, notice the title uh, that uh, uh, the angel addresses Joseph with, Son of David. Um, While Joseph was not the physical, human, literal father of Christ, he of course could not be because Christ was not conceived in that way. Um, He was of the lineage of David, um, became the legal father uh, of Christ, and the line of the king does go to God, to Christ. Um, Quick question as we talk about the virgin birth. Is this what is called the immaculate conception? Right, yeah, and that's, that's why I brought that up, because I want to make sure that we are clear on that. If you hear the words immaculate conception, what you th- should be thinking of is this, but thanks to Roman Catholic Church uh, doctrine and dogma, that is uh, not what that term refers to. It is the Roman Catholic doctrine that asserts that Mary was born without original sin. Um, we as Protestants reject that doctrine as unbiblical, Uh, And by the way, it was not officially declared a doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church until 1854 by Pope Pius IX, who said this, We declare and pronounce and define that the doctrine which holds that the Blessed Virgin Mary, at the first instant of her conception, by a singular privilege and grace of the omnipotent God, in virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of mankind, was preserved immaculate from all stain of original sin, has been revealed by God and therefore should firmly and constantly be believed by all the faithful. That was the declaration of the Roman Catholic Church in 1854. Um, But of course, that's not borne out in Scripture. And what do we see about original sin in Scripture, or what we call our old sin nature, that nature that we are born with, that is passed down from our first father and federal head, Adam, uh, to every successive generation? Uh, Well, Perhaps you've heard it summed up this way, we sin because we are sinners, rather than, well, we're sinners because we sin. We come out as this blank slate, we come out uh, able to do uh, really whatever, could be good, could be bad. No, by nature, the scripture tells us, we are children of wrath. David said in Psalm 51.5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Uh, death we know from Romans 5 comes upon all, for all have sinned. 
just as sin came into the world through one man, which is, of course, referring to Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, that one being, of course, Christ. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So being Adam's seed is a problem. There is a perpetual state of sinfulness, original sin, that old sin nature that is handed down through fatherhood from generation to generation. But Christ, as the true and better Adam, breaks that chain. Consider what we see in Jesus' genealogy as declared in the book of Luke. Uh, Now, Matthew's genealogy starts with Abraham and works forward to Christ. If you look at Luke's genealogy in Luke 3, it starts uh, with Christ and then works backward all the way to Adam. And beginning with Christ, it says, Jesus being the son, as was supposed, of of Joseph. And of course, we see that that supposition continued to be carried forth when the Pharisees uh, put that dig in there. Uh, We recently heard uh, in Pastor Logan's study of John, we were not born of sexual immorality. What's that meant to be a, a dig at? The rumor that, well, Jesus was not conceived uh, in, in marriage. Uh, he was born out of wedlock. Um, we don't know who his father is. Maybe it was Joseph. Maybe it was somebody else. Um, but, of course, we do know that it was the virgin birth conceived by the Holy Spirit. And going back to this point of Jesus as the true and better Adam, As you work in Luke's genealogy all the way back to Adam, you get to Adam, and it closes off with the son of Adam, the son of God. Of course, Christ is the true son of God um, in a way that Adam could never be. And, of course, Christ knew himself that he was the son of God. When he was 12 years old and found in the temple because he had not gone back with his parents, they do find him in the temple eventually. They're upset at him for going off, and he says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house, or as some translations have it, about my father's business? The temple wasn't Joseph's house. The temple wasn't Joseph's business. It was God, the father, that Christ was, of course, talking about. So why do you think, here's our our summary here uh, of the points that we've been covering from this chapter, why do you think that the virgin birth is such a sticking point uh, and something that is so uh, vehemently denied by people who would be critics, uh, skeptics of the faith? What sort of dilemma does it put them under? If he has just a normal human birth, can he be lumped in with any other Jewish rabbi that came along? Or any other hero. I mean, they have, that, this, they have the notion of the um, heroes born of the gods. Mm. So it's something that was never conceived of before. Right. If you were dealing with the search for the Messiah, there would be this, the expectation was birthed by. God's union with man through woman through sexual right through sexual means. So it wasn't something that was even conceived of. It comes out of left field, and no one knows how to deal with this idea of a 
virgin birth of the Holy Spirit. Right. Yes, you're right. Um, that that is how the other sons of God come to be is through a very natural human uh, union. Um, you know, it really gives authentic, authenticity and authority to Christ. He can't be passed off as just another person when he is the eternal son of God. He's authoritative. The virgin birth is supernatural, and other supernatural elements of the Christian faith have to be dealt with as well, such as the resurrection. Um, and usually um, this is why the denial of the virgin birth is, is typically linked with denials of other supernatural or mysterious elements of the scripture. Any questions on virgin birth? Comments? Okay, well then uh, let's segue to the next topic, rather, approach, rather appropriately, Christ as the only begotten. Uh, let's consider two verses to get us started here. Uh, John 1, verse 14, and Colossians 1, verse 15. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then also Colossians 1.15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Begotten, not created. How do we handle these verses? Um, well, if we're going to be good interpreters of the scripture, rightly handling the word of truth, we must do a couple of things. First of all, we should always consider context. Rather than fixating on one word and jumping into, well, what, what do I think that English word means or sounds like? Let's back up and consider the context and the use of that verse uh, and the word within that verse. Uh, two, if we're going to have a good hermeneutic, which is a, a method or manner of biblical interpretation, uh, we should view what is implicit or perhaps less clear in the light of what is explicit and more clear. So let's do that, uh, tackling first that uh, phrase, firstborn of, or perhaps over all creation. Here. This is, let me put this out there, the uh, has sparked controversy. Let me get these summary points real quick before I jump into those passages. This has been a source of controversy in church history over the deity of Christ. And then number two, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons uh, both use these passages to deny the deity of Christ. But now let's consider them more in their context, starting with Colossians 1.15. Now I'm choosing a different translation uh, just to kind of help uh, drive home the point as well. Paul says in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, or as some versions say, preeminence. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, I think when you consider the context of Colossians 1.15, which again, that verse in isolation is sometimes pulled out to say, oh, well, the firstborn of creation, he's just the first of a series of created beings. That's what the opponents would say. But when you consider the context of that verse, um, number one, I think that over, which many translations say he is the firstborn over creation, not that of is wrong, but I think over might uh, carry a better uh, uh, meaning there. Paul's focus here is on the supremacy or the preeminence of Christ. And you can see that he goes on at length to talk about how great and glorious and magnificent Christ is. And you see language that's very much in line with what we would also see in John chapter 1. Uh, Pastor Logan preached from that uh, not too long ago, uh, where we saw that he was in the beginning with God. He was God. Without him was not anything made that was made. Similar here, he is before all things. All things have been created through him. That would not make sense if Christ himself were a created being. If all things are made by him, all things that are made, made by Christ, then Christ himself cannot be a made thing or being. Um, he is, as Paul points out, the firstborn from the dead. Now, I think that use of the word firstborn is pointing more towards the reality of his resurrection. He is the first to receive the resurrected body that will never die again. And someday all humanity will receive their uh, resurrected body, whether to judgment or to glory. But his divine spirit, his eternal being, is the firstborn over all creation. And I think Dr. Sproul sums it up well when he says, the phrase firstborn over all creation must be understood from the background of first century Jewish culture. From this vantage point, we can see that the term firstborn refers to Christ's exalted status as the heir of God. Think about the, the significance that being the firstborn uh, carried uh, when, you were, uh, when you're reading the Bible. Uh, the firstborn birthright that passes down, the, the sonship, being the heir of the estate. Um, just as the firstborn son usually received the patriarchal inheritance, so Jesus, as the divine son, receives the Father's kingdom as his inheritance. Uh, effectively, he receives the inheritance of the kingdom as the firstborn. Moving to that term begotten, though, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So again, we want to focus on what we explicitly know from Scripture, using Scripture to interpret Scripture. The word begotten is clearly in the Scripture. Uh, we have to deal with it. It's like election or predestination. People can say, oh, well, I don't believe in election, or I don't believe in predestination. Eh, the Bible really doesn't give you that, that option. It's there. Uh, but the real issue is what is meant by such terms. Um, Jump here. Shouldn't we be using this idea like eternally begotten? He's not simply begotten, he's eternally begotten. From the beginning, I mean, eternal means to be 
from beginning to end with no limit mm. sight. That it just simply is begotten. Right, right, yeah. So um, kind of building up to this next bullet point, uh, Arian, or Arius, uh, the person behind uh, the uh, heretical doctrine of Arianism, denies the deity of Christ because they say, well, begotten means to begin, to start. Uh, it, it, applying a very human interpretation and view of time, it says, well, this is the start of something. Christ was begotten, and therefore he came into being at this point. But you're right, when we are talking about God, we are blowing the lid off that concept of time because God is eternal. He's not bound by time. He is outside of time. Um, so that is something that you need to think about, you know, eternally begotten. Um, and, I, and we're going to see that really what's, what the doctrine is focused on is the uniqueness of that uh, begetting or being begotten, uh, one of a kind, one and only son. Um, so Arianism, as I was indicating, uh, denied the deity of Christ, saying that he was the highest of created beings that begot meant to happen, to become, or to begin. And in response, you have the first church council of Nicaea in 325 with the resulting uh, Nicene Creed, and they make this careful distinction that Christ was begotten, not made. Now, I think sometimes, you know, especially when we're getting into um, the heavy stuff like this, it really helps to do word studies. Uh, I really recommend uh, biblehub.com because you can pull up verses and you can have access to Strong's Concordance. You can see where you know, the same word is used in different contexts. Um, and not that it you know, makes all of us uh, Greek scholars overnight, but it does provide some, I think, some interesting insights. Uh, and the word uh, that we find here uh, for uh, begotten in John 1.14 is monogenes. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, and if you break that down, mono, if people are monotheistic, do they believe in one God or many gods? One. Genes, which could be offspring, yes, or it could be kinds. Now, that word genes can be used about various kinds of tongues or peoples. So it is a word that can properly mean one and only, one of a kind, unique, only of its kind. And so Dr. Sproul makes the point that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. Uh, that word monogenes is stronger than the English word only. We use the word only all the time. But the Greek word monogenes is much more emphatic. It's much stronger, as Dr. Sproul points out. Uh, Jesus is absolutely unique. He is the one and only Son of God. He is uniquely begotten. And certainly outside of time is one way in which God, the triune God, is unique and different from mankind. Uh, Dr. Sproul also notes that there is significant Greek manuscript evidence that John 1.14 said the only begotten God rather than the only begotten Son. So kind of further separating, I guess, us from that argument that, well, this just means that begotten means created, came to being, uh, did not formally exist. Uh, Dr. Sproul said no one or nothing else is begotten in the sense that Christ is begotten. Um, and we don't have time to go down this path, but let me throw this out there. Psalm 2, verse 7, Acts 13, 33, 
and Hebrews 5, 5. The word begotten shows up in those three verses as well. And Dr. Sproul's book did not actually talk about that, uh, any of those verses and their use of the word uh, begotten, but they, they came to my mind. Um, Psalm 2 says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. We see it as a messianic psalm because it shows up in Acts 13.33, Paul's preaching at Antioch, and then the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 5.5 5, uh, uh, quotes that psalm as well. So we know it's a messianic psalm, we know it's talking about Christ, but if you look at the use of that word, today I have begotten you. That word begotten is different than the word begotten in John 1. So, again, Dr. Sproul's book didn't deal with it, so it sent me off down my own path of study and inquiry, uh, made some very you know, interesting, uh, uh, made for some interesting reading. Um, and so I, I'm not gonna get too deep into it, but just kind of speaking at a high level, it seems that when, so Dr. Sproul focuses on that word monogenes and uses it to say, well, this, this appears to be speaking about the relationship with, between Jesus and the Father, you know, the only begotten Son of God, the one and only unique Son of God. Um, that is that word monogenes. A different Greek word, genao, appears in the other verses that I just uh, quoted from Psalms and Acts and Hebrews. And there, uh, commentators seem to say that, well, that seems to be focusing on the relationship, not between God and his Father, but rather the relationship between Jesus and the redemption of man, because it's tied to his resurrection. And so uh, that word, begotten, again, if we hear it in our own English language, begotten sounds so much like begin that we can just kind of go rushing to that conclusion. But um, backing up, I think that it is something that, that while the words are different, they, they, are, they are communicating things about uh, Christ that we have um, explained for us in Scripture. We have, um, the, we have the way that God uses the words for us um, to, to communicate something unique about himself. And you know, there is mystery here. Uh, this is one of the, the, the deeper uh, topics that I think that, uh, um, that I think we have to deal with. But what do we go back to? We go back to what we know about God. We know what we know about his word, and we know about Christ, and that Christ is the eternal Son of God, that without him there was not anything made that was made. Um, so some interesting studies, uh, you know, from the verses that we've talked about, interesting uses of the word. Um, but as, as Dr. Sproul said, Jesus is called the only begotten of the Father. Jesus is uniquely begotten of the Father, not as a cre cre uh, creature, but as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Any questions on that one? That is, that's a tough one. Begotten, not a word we use a lot. Okay, well, let's talk about a much easier word, baptism. Now, maybe if you were talking with uh, Dr. Sproul one-on-one, -on -one, it wouldn't be so easy a word because he is, uh, was a Presbyterian. Um, so his view on baptism was uh, a little bit different. But what we're talking about now, thankfully, I think there would be much more unity on because we're talking about the baptism of Christ. Now, Christ was baptized in physical, literal water 
by John. So we think we first need to talk about John's baptism because it was part of what we read in Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So that's the prophecy that led up to John the Baptist appearing, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we see that John's baptism was a baptism of preparation, uh, predicted in Isaiah and uh, born out in that time right before uh, Jesus began his earthly ministry. The new covenant did not begin until after that. And so, as Dr. Sproul points out, John's baptism, properly considered, belongs to the Old Testament. The kingdom of heaven was at hand with Christ coming to earth, but people needed prostrated hearts. Hearts that recognize their sins and the need for cleansing from that sin. Now, this was, of course, problematic for many Jews because they were Jews, after all. They were not Gentiles. Uh, they viewed Gentiles as dogs, as goyim, beneath them. Uh, we see this uh, in Jesus' dealings with the Pharisees. Um, again, they said, we are not born of sexual immorality. Abraham is our father. Uh, consider this also for Matthew 3, uh, verses 7 through 9. But when John saw that many of the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And that should sound very familiar from Christ's interactions with the Pharisees as we've been seeing in John. Okay, now, if baptism was due to the presence of sin and to reflect the need for cleansing, why was Jesus baptized? Well, if he's going to be the head of the church and everyone is baptized, he needs to be baptized also just to just because he is the head of the church. Um, I, know the, I know the text says to fulfill all righteousness. Right. But the, the righteousness, baptism is a sign of the righteousness of the person. They have been saved, they have been baptized in the spirit or so, so to speak. Right. And that they are, that there, there's a difference between John's baptism. John's baptism was a baptism in the forgiveness of sins, whereas Christ was a baptism which symbolized savedness of that individual right. and therefore just as Jews were um, circumcised to show their membership within amongst Jews so Christ was baptized to show his to show that he is the head member of this new church that would be this new Israel but it, 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 it signified salvation not specifically repentance of sin that was all God obviously 
part of sure. salvation, but it signifies their saved state. Right. Yeah, Christ certainly is our leader. We, we follow him. We follow his example. And uh, you're right, as um, we read in Matthew 3.17, uh, I'm sorry, 3, verses 13 through 17, Jesus said it was to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Remember, Christ is our substitute. And I, Steve, I did appreciate what you said, um, because as believers, as New Covenant believers, we are called upon to be baptized. Um, but you have the thief on the cross, not baptized. Christ is our perfect substitute. We get our sins charged to his account. We get his righteousness imputed to our account. And so in Christ, the thief effectively was baptized, uh, viewed as viewed by God the Father as baptized. Uh, righteousness, all righteousness was fulfilled for that thief who was saved on the cross. Now do we say that, well, that means nobody has to be baptized? Of course not, because we are commanded to be baptized. And that is part of our walk with the Lord, is to reflect that we are being buried with him in baptism, being raised in newness of life. It is a mark of that identification with Christ, following, uh, being part of the people of God. And Christ, as our leader, goes before us and was himself baptized. So Jesus was baptized not for his own sin, but to identify with the sinners he came to save. And Jesus was ordained or anointed at his baptism. Uh, on that last point, this begins the earthly ministry of Christ. Dr. Sproul notes this. The term Christ means anointed one. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism and began to fulfill the role of Messiah as described by Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. That's from Isaiah 61, verse 1. So any questions about these summary points or just about the baptism of Christ in general? Okay, well then in the time remaining, let's jump right into the final subject for today, and that is the glory of Christ. Um, and I'm going to go right to Matthew 17. I'm sorry, I left a uh, uh, 7 off there. That's not Matthew 1, that is Matthew 17, 3 through 17. Um, I think it actually is 1 through 7. I really messed that up this morning. Sorry about that. So don't go off that. Uh, Matthew 17, 1 through 7. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud.
cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now we're, of course, honing in on that word transfigured. Again, heartily recommend BibleHubHub.com. It really is a great resource. Um, in fact, I did a little screen grab here of the sort of information that you can find where uh, the, the word by word, Greek translation, hyperlinked and everything, metamorpho, that word transfigured, does that sound like anything that you've heard used even in our English language? Yes. What little creature do we often think of with that? A butterfly. That's right. It goes from that cocoon. Not the science guy. The lawyer right here trying his best to show uh, science. But uh, yes, you're right. So the, the, the process of that metamorphosis from the, uh, from the chrysalis to the caterpillar to the butterfly, it's just, it's amazing um, how that transformation from within occurs. Um, and if you look here at the uh, Strong's uh, portion that I've got highlighted in blue, changing form in keeping with inner reality. Like it's a transformation from within. It's not a, tra uh, a, a change that's happening because of external forces. Okay, well something is being changed because you've got external forces forcing it to change. No, there's a change from within in keeping with the inner reality. Uh, properly transformed after being with. And if we think about Christ, we know that Christ is God. Yes, he veiled that deity in flesh when he was here on this earth. But who he is has always been the eternal Son of God. And the glory that shone forth uh, displayed that. Isn't this also the first breaking in of the second the new creation? The transfigured body is the new creation. It's also interesting how, how God's glory shows up at the temple when it was, when it was mm. established and the priests were forced out of the and Moses stood at a distance whereas the disciples are brought, are, right there. are included within. So it shows that the relationship between deity mm. and mankind in the second creation is changed. Right. Mankind is becoming part of the deity yes. through the covenant with Christ. Yeah, I'm going to jump ahead to this right here. Um, kind of building on that, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's a present reality. We are being transformed. Um, but how slow and faltering and painful that process is. There is coming a day, though, second bullet, 1 John 3, 2. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then to cap it off from Revelation 22, verses 4 through 5, they will see his face, and his name will be on their forehead. There will be no more night in the city, and they will have no need for the light of a lamp or the sun, for the Lord will shine on them, and they will reign forever. 
I love how Dr. Sproul put it, the glory of Christ shone forth at the, I'm sorry, that the glory of Christ shone forth at the transfiguration should not surprise us. The surprise is that he willingly veiled his glory for the sake of his children. That's the staggering thing. He was always the eternal, glorious son of God, but that he would veil that, that he would cloak that for us um, as he walked among us is, is what is truly amazing. But we, they caught that glimpse with the transfiguration. We catch that glimpse as we ourselves are being transformed and know that there is coming a day when a greater, fuller, more complete transformation will occur. We will be like him. All right. One, am I doing on time? One final ask. And I recognize this might, might cause a riot for multiple reasons um, because I'm going to ask you to sing with me one verse of a Christmas song. Not this version. It's the Latin. But one verse from O Come, All Ye Faithful. Because as I was working through these different topics, the virgin birth, the only begotten, the baptism, and the glory of Christ, this is the verse that came to mind. So if you want to stand... Before you bolt for the door, I recognize that may give you. I'll do my best to lead us here a cappella. God of God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God be not created. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Now you're ready for Christmas. <laughs>